Hey everyone, this is Miss Akimoto with your second part of chapter three for threads. So last week when we ended, we were on Yuming's chapter, which is in the Hebei province of China. And we kind of found out more about her living conditions, which sound really awful. She's stuck in a basement of a factory and she's forced to sew purses all day long. Um, we call places like that sweatshops because you have to work the whole time. And she's struggling because she keeps thinking back to her life and what it was like before. And she was living with her grandparents and her brother, it sounds like. And then somehow she got, um, she got taken away from them. And we don't really know how yet. We just know somehow she's ended up here. So let's listen to part two of chapter three. The door to our basement room snapped open and Mr. Zhang entered, as he does every day, to evaluate our work. I had watched him, my stomach churning, as he examined the sewing of the children in the rows in front of me. I'd hastily attached the amber handle I was working on. It jutted sideways from the purse like a broken bone, and I swallowed hard, knowing that if he looked closely at my sewing, he would surely notice it. He paced stiffly up and down the rows, his hands behind his back grasping his clipboard with pages and pages of order numbers and shipping dates as he peered over the other shoulders. Even the tiny ones, their clothes dirty and their noses running, some of them smaller even than Min Li, my six-year-old neighbor back home, didn't flinch as Mr. Zhang walked past. They sewed and sewed like always, their bony backs hunched in front of Jing and me. I stared down at my purse handle. Next to me was the seam ripper, its sharp point glistening in the glow of the light bulb directly overhead. Mr. Zhang's footsteps approached the last row where Jing and I sat alone on the long bench. If he saw me removing the stitching, he would know for certain about my mistake. If I didn't do anything, he'd most likely see the messy row of amber thread in the crooked handle. He'd chastise me for my sloppiness and for not correcting my error. Definite punishment or probable, more severe punishment? I asked myself, weighing my options, think of, thinking of Qian Chi. Probable. I put down the foot pedal and concentrated on sewing a straight line. I covered the mistake awkwardly with the palm of my left hand as I worked. Mr. Zhang was almost behind me and my heartbeat thumped along with the quick chug, chug, chug of my sewing machine. I held my breath. Keep walking, I begged silently. Don't stop here. But the footsteps stopped. Mr. Zhang's arm reached for the purse. I lifted my foot from the pedal and watched the needle stop above the stiff amber handle and wait there. He pulled the purse off the sewing machine and slapped his clipboard down on the table next to me. With his other hand, he reached for the scissors, the extra sharp ones with the orange handle. He cut my thread, snapping the purse free from the machine. I looked down at my lap and listened to the sound of him turning the purse over and over. His voice was sharp. Your work is sloppy. He spit the words at the back of my head, picking up the seam ripper and yanking out the amber threads with angry tugs. Start again, he ordered, shoving the purse back at me. There were tiny holes in the fabric where my crooked stitching had been. No lunch for this one, he announced to the guard at the other end of the room. Nobody stopped sewing, but everyone could hear him. She needs all the time she can to get practice at her craft. His words made me furious. 
I was starving. I'd finished each paltry meal only slightly less hungry than when I started it. So a paltry meal is a very small meal. So they're not feeding them very much. I glanced at the clipboard on the wooden table next to me. I need to get this order to Beijing tonight, Mr. Zhang grumbled angrily. I examined the rows of numbers and cities. Most of the ship from locations were Beijing. A few were Shanghai. All of the ship to were in the United States of America. Get back to work, Mr. Zhang scowled at me. Get to work. There was a knock on the door behind the guard, a series of six quick taps, and he jumped to open it. Another young guard's nervous face appeared. Mr. Zhang, he announced, there was a small fire in the front. A what? Mr. Zhang cried. I froze, beads of sweat suddenly dotting my forehead. The chugging sound slowed around me. Nobody looked up from their sewing machines. Blood pounded in my ears as my eyes frantically searched the basement room, even though I already knew what surrounded me. Four cement walls, a low cement ceiling, one filthy bathroom, no windows, and the guarded door. It has been extinguished, but two employees were injured and one of the machines is now inoperable. Mr. Zhang cursed under his breath. I cannot afford to lose any machines, he bellowed. He stormed toward the guard and disappeared into the dark factory, slamming the door beside him. behind him. The guard stood to lock it. In his haste, Mr. Zhang had left his clipboard behind. There was a pen attached to it by a string. I hadn't held a pen in over a month. I picked it up and, glancing at the guard's back, pulled it toward me. It reminded me of the schoolhouse back home, of the dusty chalkboard and the whispering, giggling students, of our solid table where I used to study in the evenings, of all the places I might never see again. The pen felt alive in my hands. An idea emerged like a bird from an egg. It came to me, fully formed, crystallized, the way the answers often came to me during exams at schools. I weighed all my options and measured the risk. As I did so, the chug, chug, chug sounded to me like 21 panicked heartbeats, too fast, unsteady. But then there was my heart, which felt firm in my chest for the first time since I had arrived at this prison. I sneaked a look back at the guard. He was seated again and picking at his fingernails. The stack of paper on the clipboard was thick, and I flipped through it furtively. There were dozens of pages of numbers, dates, and addresses. The sounds of the sewing machines that masked the constant grumbling of my belly would surely mask the sound of ripping paper. The guard now had his head tilted back, his eyes shut. The door was still closed. I took a deep breath and steadied my hands. As quietly as I could, I ripped off a large corner off a piece of the paper in the middle of Mr. Zhang's stack. I'd torn through some figures, but the other side of the paper was blank. After a quick peek at the backs of the children in front of me and at the guard, whose eyes were still shut, I hunched over the scrap and scribbled a few sentences in English, grateful for the education that Wai Gong had always told me to appreciate. When it was done, I folded the note quickly into a flat square. Then... I hesitated. In my pocket was my photograph, the one that had been taken two years ago at the Lucky Fountain at Molahua Park. I was 11 at the time. Bo Lin was 16. Wai Gong, Wai Po, and I had accompanied Bo Lin to Shanghai, where my brother had decided he was going to find work. 
When a vendor approached us and offered to take a family photograph, Wai Gong had said, I think we should do it, surprising all of us. After all, this is our lucky fountain now. Well, Lin will find work near here and help support our family. So we'd pose beside the water, the wind blowing my hair, and the young man had printed the photo at his stand. I peered up one last time before slipping it from my pocket, where I'd kept it every day and night since Gong's death. It was wrinkled and tattered, and I ran my fingers over the four smiling faces. I held my breath as I folded the photograph carefully into a square. I tucked it and my note into the small purse pocket, zipped the pocket closed, and sewed the strap on carefully, perfectly, before tossing the purse into the growing colorful pile at the side of the room. Jing tapped her fingernails on the wooden bench. My heart jumped into my throat. She had seen! Would she tell? I glanced at her eyes, but they were fixed on her sewing. Then, I looked at her hand. She was giving me a thumbs up. I couldn't help smiling a little as I breathed again and picked up another amber purse and handle. I had resumed sewing just as Mr. Zhang barged in, startling the guard. I kept my eyes glued to the purse in front of me as he snatched up his clipboard and marched back through the door, slamming it beside behind him once more. And now, six weeks later, nothing has come of it. It was a risk that did not pay off. I sacrificed the only photograph in existence of my family. I searched my mind for what Wai Gong may have taught me about how to learn from such gambles, but exhaustion is moving in now. It's clouding my mind. I glance over at Jing, at the deep, dark brush strokes below her eyes, and I wonder once again what time it is. I wonder when Mr. Zhang will burst through the door into our musty prison and tell us that, at last, is time to sleep. So now we know what the letter is, and where it came from, and what was going on. Come back tomorrow to find out what happens next.